Energy girl, can you help me? I don't understand this paper. Can you help me? Can you help me? Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Energy Girl, a podcast where we unpack research papers and industry reports to make the field of energy and sustainability more accessible. My name is Audrey and I'm an electrical engineer in the clean tech industry. I am again joined by indoor plant murderer, Janine. Hello, Janine. Hello, Audrey. <laughs> How dare you? It's sitting right here. My plant, Davina, is a Calatha. Calathas, for those of you who are blessed not to know, are um, finicky little bitches. And my Calatha, Davina, has just given up the ghost. And I sent a picture to Audrey in confidence, needing somebody to mourn with. And what do I get? A new superlative. That's fine. Whatever. It's fine. Yeah, anyways, um, I'm in mourning. Uh, you can't see me, but I'm wearing all black. Um, yeah. So anyways. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. Aside from that, what's been new in your life lately? What have you been into? So I watched the John Oliver thing from yesterday. And uh, at the very end of it, he was talking about, well, he was talking about sports this time. And I'm not really like into sports, really, unless I know the rules. Um, but John Oliver introduced me to a sport that has kind of, I, I had to rip myself away from this to actually read our document and get ready for this podcast but i have been watching an ungodly amount of marble racing do you know what that is no it's exactly what it sounds like um all the thrill and unpredictability of conventional sports um just in a way that is totally safe you can be totally social distance and enjoy it um I believe the guy who does it is named Yella. He's, he's like, he's Scandinavian, I think. Um, but he does these, uh, these marble races. Literally, he gets all these different marbles. They have backstories. They're all different colors. And you pick one, and then you get emotionally invested, and then you watch them race, and it's awesome. And, and he's got a guy who does commentary, and it's just hilarious. Like, he's trying to, like, put a bunch of motivations and and you know technique onto the movement of these marbles and it's just it's invigorating so if you find yourself missing competitive sports i cannot recommend marble racing enough um and i think this coming june so not too far in the future uh they're going to have their 2020 international league marble uh racing and it's like the olympics it's i'm i'm hyped essentially that's um i uh, I'm losing my mind in quarantine. So. Clearly. Uh, you know, I'm not missing competitive sports. However, I am missing gambling on horse racing. So I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, dude. I mean, I will totally, totally put down $3 on a marble race against you. I'm going to put down the $2 that you had to <gasps> Venmo me for saying windmills twice on the last Uh-oh. episode. We're going to be rich. Ayo. <laughs> All right. Well, I have not been <laughs> to marble racing. Um, I think I t- took a more conventional route to occupy my time, which is just reading. Um, getting into reading literature, which I haven't done in a long time. I just read nonfiction these days. But I read Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote, which I love Capote. I've read so much of his stuff, but I never read that one. Kind of at a protest because 
so many people are obsessed with, you know, the Audrey Hepburn image. I'm, I'm like, no, I don't want to like it. The greater Audrey. <laughs> yeah, basically. Like, but I really enjoyed it. And now I did not understand prior to this why people like book clubs so much because it just seems like voluntary homework. But now I get it because <laughs> all I want to do is talk about the book and about Holly Golightly's character because it's so interesting and she really has nothing to do with like the portrayal that Audrey Hepburn did in the movie. Like what Audrey Hepburn did was great, but it's nothing about what the book <laughs> is doing. Oh, man. And that's not well, her fault. That's like a director's choice, whatever. Fine. Yeah, true, true. Well, I am um, actually currently reading Flustuck by Tiffany's. So I, <laughs> I, I can read every other German word and understand it. So, hey, maybe we'll have a book club. Uh, I will only be able to speak in German, though. So if you're chill with that. No, if anything, we need to have a book club where we both read French books, because at least you have a little bit of French, because I have zero German. <laughs> Oh, come on. It's a fun in that. Oh, well. Can we All right. read Le Petit Prince? <laughs> oh, good Lord. We can both suffer. Oh, oh my. It begins with science papers and it then it devolves into, oh, oh, languages. That'd be fun, though. Yeah, this podcast isn't about humanities, but maybe it should be. Maybe it should be about literature <laughs> instead. We just do a hard pivot <laughs> to literature. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll be equally, uh, what's it called? Uh, qualified to speak about literature. Yeah, zero <laughs> equals zero. <laughs> Woohoo! Come on, numbers. Alrighty. Come on, numbers. And with that, we will get into the science. <laughs> so this week, the article we're covering is called Hydrokinetic Energy Conversion, colon, Technology, Research, and Outlook. It was published in 2015 in the Elsevier Renewable and Sustainable Energy News, it is from 2015, so it's possible that some of the numbers we may talk about are out of date since a lot can change in five years, especially when it comes to renewable energy because this mm. industry is changing so quickly. But the main idea should be the same, so we will just continue. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of background as to why I chose this for this week. Um, I got a text from Janine that had a picture of a turbine that was underwater in the ocean with the caption, what? With a million exclamation points and question marks. So I want to start off, Janine, what are your feelings about this topic and what do you want to make sure we cover today? So like we had talked about this last time, but there is a weird feeling of absurd smallness that one feels whenever you're standing next to like a uh, hundred meter tall wind turbine. Um, and it kind of makes me feel a little jittery, kind of triggers that fight or flight reflex. I don't know, something about it, like, you know, Iron Giant and Hogarth, like how you said, you know? Okay, mm -hmm. so take that feeling and multiply it by about a million, and then you've got a legitimate phobia, but kind of for a different reason. So there's this whole subreddit on Reddit, which I spend a little bit too much time browsing, uh, and it's called submechanophobia. And what that means is uh, an, an intense fear of submerged man-made objects. And like, it doesn't sound like it should be that scary. Like, okay, whatever, things that are man-made that are underwater, whatever. But then you kind of work in scale and like um, how terrifying it would be for you to like be swimming. And then all of a sudden there'd be like a big drop off and then 
underneath that would be like this massive shipwreck or something like that. Like that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Um, and it's kind of like a weird, morbid fascination with like creepy things under the water that are decaying and being given back to nature. So it's like, you take that and then you take the fear of large turbines, which we'll get more into why I think that's so uh, integral to our uh, fear response mechanisms as human beings. But like, okay. So I saw this thing, it's a turbine, it's underwater. It freaked me out. And I was like, what the heck is that? Audrey, please explain. So. Yeah, your, your fear of, like, the unknown in the water plus your fear of turbines after watching Charlie and the Chocolate Factory just kind yes. of multiplied. Yes, that is ultimately, okay, everybody's seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? You know that one scene where they're drinking the fizzy lifting solution, whatever, and they're all, like, they're floating up there, and then suddenly uh, Grandpa George looks up, he's like, Charlie, we're going to be cut to ribbons, ah, and then they all freak out and they burp and get away from it. But I think that that fear of, fast rotating blades has really become culturally ingrained <laughs> maybe that's something to look at Willy Wonka <laughs> affected you in many ways gosh <laughs> are you a, a Johnny Depp girl or a Gene Wilder stan are you kidding me are you actually kidding me Gene Wilder yes girl okay oh my god we keep getting off topic back to the science <laughs> All right, so the the article, how are we feeling about that mm-hmm. title? Do we get what's happening in this paper? That's pretty good. Um, hydrokinetic, I'm assuming that just means like the movement of water, yep. uh, energy conversion, turning that movement into energy. Technology research and outlook. Makes sense. Okay, cool. I'm going to nitpick a little bit because you said turning that movement into energy. It's Uh-oh. already energy. It's just oh, mechanical into- energy. I see. Yes, into electrical energy. There we go. There we are. All right. So in the article, they begin with three types of hydrokinetic energy. There's inland, so that's going to be rivers. There's Mm -hmm. tidal, so that'll be estuaries and channels. And then there's ocean, which is going to be those deeper currents. Note that we are not talking about hydropower dams. That's kind of a totally different situation that we might need to dedicate a whole podcast to. Um, cause mm-hmm. dams, you know, they, they completely change the landscape and the environment so that they control the amount of water that's going through the turbines and everything. But in this article, we're really talking about taking these technologies and then putting them out in the wild, basically, and then seeing what they can generate. Okay. So there are different types of turbines then? Or? There are. Yeah. So the, the article goes into depth about them, but just to keep it kind of surface um mm-hmm. there's axial flow and those are going to be just like the majority of wind turbine turbines that you see that look like pinwheels mm-hmm. um and then there's also cross flow which instead of rotating like a pinwheel think about it rotating like a carousel Ooh. so it's it's oriented perpendicular to the flow of the water gotcha the, the axle that it rotates around is perpendicular to the flow so one is vertical and one is horizontal. Not Too general. necessarily. Well, with mm-hmm. the axial flow, definitely that's going to be a horizontal axle. So the, the rod that it rotates around will be horizontal. Right. Um, but with the cross flow system, you know, they could orient it vertically or horizontally and it would still Ooh. rotate the same. 
That's a good point, though. Um, these technologies are also used with wind. So you can have the, you know, the three blades that we're always used to seeing pictures of. Um, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of different types of wind turbines, and, and this actually applies to that as well. There's what we would call vertically oriented or horizontally oriented wind turbines. Cool. So what's the deal? What are, what are, what's, what's up with these things? Why is it so hard? The main thing holding the hydrokinetic systems back is that they have yet to demonstrate that they can reliably produce a significant amount of energy at a reasonable cost. Um, Hmm. Of course, researchers are working to figure out, you know, things like the optimal way to design the blades and um, the rotors, but they're also modeling the best way to arrange them, which is called turbine wake planning. So wake planning is actually something that affects wind turbines as well, but we just didn't get into it last week. The idea is that once wind passes through a turbine, the wind pattern behind that turbine has changed. So with wake planning, you have to figure out the best arrangement to make sure you're optimally using all the wind or the water. Mm-hmm. So if you put like one turbine right behind the other, it's probably not using the energy in the most efficient way. Right. Gotcha. Could you put them like in each other's wake? So it could be like a never ending path of energy. Is that what they do? Well, there is no such thing as perpetual motion, right? Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you know, insofar as, you know, because I'm thinking like wakeboarding where you can actually like do cool stuff with the wakes. So like maybe you can do that with wind. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. They try to orient it so it's the most optimal arrangement. Because um, mm-hmm. the issue is once the wind goes through one of the turbines, it slows down significantly and then it um... also like disperses in different ways. So they have to orient the turbines behind it to catch that in the best way. And I guess wind does change direction, so that's rough. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> worth a shot. Yeah. No Nobel Prize for me yet. That's okay. You know, it's only episode four. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so um, the second big challenge behind, you know, designing the most economical system is going to be environmental impact. And this is where I see water really differing from wind because it seems like there are a lot more environmental concerns. Mm. So with wind, as we addressed last week, you really just have to think about birds and if migration patterns are affected. Um, And you have to do that with water as well because there are migrating animals in the sea. Um, Mm. But with water, there are there's a lot more stuff going on. There can be all kinds of mess floating around. But luckily, according to this article, quote, research to date suggests that blade strikes are a non-issue. In most cases observed, marine life avoids the turbines altogether. And in the few cases observed when fish actually pass through the turbine swept area, the survival rates have been 98% or higher. That's so, good. Yeah, that's not so bad. Um, something that you don't have to worry about so much with wind is sediment. So for the inland uh, turbines, so in a river, the turbines are going to change how the sediment travels downstream. Um, So that's going to be affecting the ecosystems in certain ways. And then also having, you know, sand and silt passing through your turbines might actually like get inside of them and and harm them. Yeah, I guess that's usually not something you'd have to worry about. A hundred meters in the sky is a giant glob of algae mucking up your turbine. Probably not. I mean, here's hoping. I mean, unless it was like 
cloudy with a chance of meatballs, then I think oh man, the wind turbines would be the, the first ones hit. Yeah, I think we need a real contingency plan for that happening. I don't think we're prepared. That's a force majeure. It's in the contracts. It's fine. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) So, finally, the article concludes with the outlook. As I said, this is a pretty small field at the moment. As of 2015, when this was published, the industry was just completing commercial testing. So, if we think in relation to the last two episodes, it's further along than the organic batteries, which are still in the early stages and in R&D, research and development phase. But hydrokinetic energy is just breaking into being commercially available. Mm. Yeah. It's a baby. It's a baby. So, okay, learning more about this has a little bit helped with my submechanophobia. Um, I'm glad that it turns out my fears of being sucked up by a giant propeller are pretty much unfounded. And well, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> well, I, I would hope, but like it seems as if... They're only in specific places, and honestly, the research is not far along enough. Uh, the commercial use is not far along enough so that it could be a legitimate fear that I could be swimming around in a river or at the ocean and get swallowed up by, a, by an ocean turbine. Am I correct in thinking this? Well, at the moment, yes. Uh-oh. However, oh okay, two qualifying things here. So first of all, if it's something that's going to be like inland or on a mm-hmm. river, it's going to be gated off, I'm sure. So there's no way you can end up in that part of the river. Okay. Okay. And then, I mean, the same thing with, with things in the, the tidal area, you're going to see the, I don't know how it looks, but there's probably going to be buoys and things you can't get near. Uh And those probably are going to be much further out than you would ever go. Right. Guessing. This is a guess. And then the ocean, of course, those are going to be deep currents. There's no way you're getting anywhere close to that. Okay. So it's not like I'm just going to be doggy paddling along and then suddenly get like no. sucked under and chopped no. up into a million ribbons. Okay. No ribbons. Oh, I can let that go. So okay. that's not going to happen. Um, I can let that go. I mean, remember, we're working with some 2015 data here, so it's probably grown mm-hmm. a bit. Though, as someone who's working in energy all the time, I rarely hear about this, mm-hmm. so I still not as big a a thing as you know wind or solar at all so but, it really is the dumpy little sister of wind that's so sad yeah unfortunately or fortunately well, 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 well hang on well hang on so our um our very attractive reoccurring guest star um transmission lines would like to talk i think a little bit about this how the heck do you transport this energy into any place that it could be used like what even is that just a part of the problem well i mean it's going to be the same idea as with offshore wind Hmm. where let's say you have a bunch of turbines that are in the ocean Mm -hmm. this is this is me imagining how it's going to look they're they're floating ish i think they're connected to a buoy but then they're also tethered down to the ocean floor Mm -hmm. so they're not going anywhere um, right. And then they've got wires that maybe are, you know, I'm not quite sure how they do this, but they might be underground or in like, like a little tunnel, basically <laughs> going back to, back to land. It's something that it, the wires go yeah. in the water, under the water. Yeah. This just sounds really expensive and kind of like 
maybe that's the reason why it hasn't taken off yet. Because um, like there's maybe. so many problems it's that I'm thinking of. Yeah, I yeah. bet. I bet. I mean, construction in the ocean is going to be difficult. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Man. Okay. Yeah. But something that I did want to say, part of the reason why it might be small now, but it, it might not be later, is that part of the research is that they show theoretically how much mm-hmm. energy you could get from all of the various types of hydrokinetic energy available in the U.S. If we did take advantage of all of it, then we could fill all of our um, electricity needs. Wow. So it says, for context, U.S. electricity consumption is roughly 4,000 terawatt hours per year. Therefore, the total theoretical resource estimate, including inland, tidal, and ocean, is slightly more than 90% of U.S. electricity consumption. Mm. Okay, so not all of it, but it could cover 90% of U.S. electricity consumption. Pretty big. Dang. All right. Well, it's something to keep keep an eye out on. Maybe she'll have a glow up. Maybe. Oh, here's Maybe. another note. Another pop quiz, but also not really because I think you know the answer. I know. So this is in your favor. It says more than 50% of the U.S. tidal resource is located in Alaska. What's the mm-hmm. issue with that, Janine? Ice? Oh, no. <laughs> it's your favorite. Transmission line? Yeah, yeah. If we did oh. go down this route of we want to invest in hydrokinetic energy and 50% of it's in Alaska, well, who lives in Alaska? Who's using energy in Alaska? Oh. So yeah, you'd have to transmit that. So that might be something holding it back is that it's yeah. not the easiest thing to get to. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Wild. Well, cool. I'm glad yeah. I know more about this. I, I fear it a little less. You fear it a little less? Not, not all the way gone, but you know. Not okay. I, I can now, I am now, it's just personal work that I need to do on my own time, so. <laughs> With your therapist? Yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, let me she's, jump. She's going to be thrilled. Let me jump the gun a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you think the takeaway is for our listeners? Well, I think the thing to to really focus on is that, you know, there is untapped resources out there Mm -hmm. and it's going to take quite a lot of investment to make sure that we know how we can really reliably use it so you know these guys suggest stuff like yeah it's going to be really hard to fix right so we need to kind of invest more in um what's it called predictive maintenance uh, maintenance Yeah, yeah 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 and and that technology being like something that we would need to develop before we got to a place where we could really depend on um, hydroelectric, hydrokinetic electric. How do you, how do you say that? H-E-K? Hydroelectric kinetic. No, no, no. Just hydrokinetic energy. Oh God. H-K-E. Um, yeah. If we're going to use it, it's going to take um, just a lot of research and development in other ways. And isn't it cool how things can kind of intersect? So yeah, so it's not going to be overnight. Big, big takeaway. <laughs> Fun fact about the predictive maintenance stuff. That's actually something that my company that I work at specializes in. So maybe, maybe hey. we'll talk about like data and communications and different kinds of software that enable these technologies. That could be something useful. Yeah, that would be cool. All right. Yeah, for me, I think 
the conclusion is kind of the opposite of last week where I was getting kind of angry about all the misinformation. And then, of course, that same week, Trump says, like, wind is a disaster. I'm like, you literally know 0% about this. So unlike last week, I feel like I'm not being snarky. I'm not trying to, like, teach the haters. Um, instead, it's it's like, look at this cool thing and there's so much potential and we just got to keep working on it because it's it's definitely moving forward it's in the early stages of commercial development so it's it's on the market it, it exists and we just need to keep working out the kinks and um popularize it absolutely mm-hmm. all right so it's time to get to the subject that i was really excited to talk about we're kind of staying on theme with this whole water thing, and we're going to talk about steam. Ooh, it's getting steamy. Yes. This is our art break. So if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. But today, we're talking about STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So it's a different approach to education that really emphasizes both the scientific stuff and art. Mm-hmm. So... I I think this is a great conversation for us to have, um, and I'm really curious to hear your perspective on this subject. From my lens of someone who has an artistic background and is an engineer, I think it makes a lot of sense where art can benefit engineers, but I want to know, do you find yourself as an artist needing to think about STEM at all, or do you think it benefits artists to think about STEM or have some STEM training? Well, I mean, I think you have to be really honest um, and the honest fact is that we use math for everything. We use technology for everything. We live in an engineered world and everything that you do is related to some form of science. So there is no escape. Um, <laughs> I, well, you know, I sought a degree in the arts thinking, oh, thank God, I'll never have to take another math class. Um, I didn't really think that went through. I didn't go to a conservatory. So yes, of course, I had to take more math classes. And, you know, it's not to the detriment of me. It, it's not something that I, I feel I'm, I'm good at. But it's something that I definitely need. I mean, like, who doesn't use numbers in their everyday life? We need to make money. We use numbers, right? <laughs> so I feel like it is important for you to have some form of fluency with math and science. And especially given the fact that like a lot of the stuff that you would want to read uses statistics and stuff like that. And it's really important, I feel, for people to have at least a basis level understanding of how this stuff works. We use numbers doing pretty much everything. Uh, it is the language of the universe. And if you cannot at least a little bit speak it, you're going to have a hard time. So I think that it's really important for artists to have STEM training. Yeah, that's a good point about statistics. Because um, everyone, there's that misconception that like numbers don't lie, but you have to understand where do those numbers come from? How do they collect their data? Is this actually telling us something or have they manipulated these supposedly objective facts to be right? They're not right. actually objective. They're not actually telling you what they think they are because maybe yeah. experiments were done poorly. Or um, people have agendas. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's important to know. The numbers might not lie, but the people sure do. So, <laughs> LOL. The truth. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you see STEM being applied in the fine arts? For what I do, at least, uh, the science aspect was always like the science of sound, the science of light, you know, for cooks, maybe the science of taste and smell and all that stuff. Yeah. So like 
you know, th there's some science behind that. Um, technology. We use a lot of technology now, especially since it's become so accessible to the everyday consumer. I use an iPad um, for all of my music. I use it to record myself. I use it to film myself. Um, lots of organizations have websites where they sell tickets. Not to mention, like, the architecture of some of these spaces are designed specifically so that you can hear people better. So, like, a concert hall is going to be possessed of some interesting technology. Maybe that a dentist office wouldn't. So, um, as far as electricity goes and engineering, um, lighting, you got to engineer sets for musicals and operas or whatever. Um, the spaces that these things are performed in, again, the theaters, the acoustics, all that stuff. And then the math aspect pretty much encompasses everything. Like, I'd like to say that, you know, science, technology, and engineering are just math wearing funny hats. So, like, the yes. math, I mean, it's there's, true. <laughs> it's like math is really pulling the strings behind all of this. She's really that girl. So, mm -hmm. I think it's important. I think... I think it's, uh, it's impossible to deny its involvement with fine arts. We used to have this really cool quote hanging in our, our scene shop department in high school. And it was like, uh, without technical theater, an actor is just a naked mime emoting in the dark. But without actors, technical theater workers have marketable skills. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that people's idea of art is very sequestered to oh, these tortured souls who are committing everything in their life to this pursuit of creativity. And that's really not true. You know, a good plumber creates art. It sounds like from, from a fine arts or performing arts perspective that having an understanding of STEM can really make your life easier. Like mm -hmm. you're trying to sell your own art online. If you can design your own website and you know how to code that, then that makes your life easier. Yeah, you're just adding tools to your toolbox. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, they're tools. So I remember in college you took geology. Oh, God. How did you like that? Is that a tool in your toolbox now? Oh, Lord. Okay. So um, I don't know. I mean, it was interesting. I kind of saw it as just a hurdle to getting my degree, which is probably not the best attitude to have towards learning new things, but definitely one that I held. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of figured it was a blow off class for you. Um, hey, it got me a diploma. So that's true. You do have a diploma. There you go. <laughs> that's what I got out of that class. <laughs> for a, a mental exercise, if you had had the opportunity to take a different STEM class and, and let's say you had like the time to dedicate to it and everything, would, would you have chosen something different or, and what mm. would that have been? Well, I mean, it's not like I didn't get STEM in what I was doing. Um, there's a lot of math that goes into music theory, and it might not seem like it, but like, especially like 21st century music theory, where composers just went, ah, I will be a calculator, and we will use numbers to come up with original ideas. And, you know, that's all cool. And they did that. That's great. Um, I learned how to do matri matrices because of it. Oh, yeah? So I, I hate it. Math. Yes, <laughs> that is the correct answer. That's terrible. <laughs> so I had to do that, you know. And then on top of that, I did take a pedagogy class, which essentially was like a big anatomy class. And it kind of was a little bit medical. We, we got to talk with a bunch of hmm. people who worked as um, speech language pathologists. 
um, otolaryngologists. So like these people who work with the anatomy of the voice, because obviously that's our instrument, right? You know, you can't yeah. just ignore it. So I did get a STEM education, I feel that's like. That's cool. Because I, I mean, didn't even that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even within the confines of like an arts degree, there is no running from STEM. <laughs> you cannot hide. Don't even try. <laughs> uh-uh. No. Resistance It'll is be, futile. Resistance is futile. There will be science and there will be math. You were in choir for a while, though. Like, as a STEM, STEM baby, what <laughs> did you even get out of that? Yeah, so I was in choir since I was like 10 years old, um, and it was just always the thing I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, throughout high school, it was like the only thing I thought about. And <laughs> I think anyone who, <laughs> anyone who went to high school with me would like agree that I was one of those kids. Choir was my life. Choir was everything. Yeah, um, amazing. But going into, into college, choir was definitely an escape for me. Um, and just so the audience is aware, the choral group that we were in, that Janine and I actually got to know each other in, was a really high-level group, really competitive. And I honestly, I think that intensity was why it was so necessary to me. Um, mm-hmm. If I'd been in a more relaxed choir, I think maybe I wouldn't have been as invested. Um, but I think because the music we were singing was so difficult and our director was so strict and scary, mm-hmm. <laughs> I... I was not able to like drift off in class. I had to be in the music. So there was, what was it, like an hour and a half every other day where I just, I had to be in the music. You can't think about your design project. You can't think about your exams. You can't think about your fiance who's overseas and you miss him so much. (laughs) You you have to just be in the music. So that was definitely helpful for me from Mm -hmm. that perspective. So like what kind of recommendations would you make to STEM students who are maybe not the most artistically inclined. You got to do it. I think, I mean, I subscribe to the, there's a book called Creative Confidence by the Kelly brothers who like coined design thinking or whatever, um, which basically says there are no just like creative types. Everyone can be creative, but some people are just more confident and some people are more timid and they haven't like exercised it enough. I think you Mm -hmm. need to be, you need to be, um, exercising that art, even if your art is bad, even if you think you're terrible, you need to get <laughs> you need to get used to that. And I think that kind mm-hmm. of helps you um, produce things, even if it even if you're producing technology, it helps you feel confident getting your ideas out there. There is kind um, of a weird power in being okay with being bad at something. Here's my little f- hypothesis. I think a strength that musicians have is that whenever you're practicing, it is out loud. And everyone can hear it. And there's mm-hmm. no running away from that. And everyone knows mm-hmm. whenever you've made a mistake and whenever you can't fix it and you're just like being dumb. <laughs> uh, whereas you can kind of hide it if you're just like doing math and no one knows. And then if you're not used to being in front of people, making mistakes in front of people, then it becomes very scary. So in addition to just doing any kind of art to exercise your creativity, I think performing arts is very important. I think people need STEM people, engineers need to be in the performing arts in some way, whether that's choir or band or theater. Um, Because something I see just everywhere is a lack of showmanship within STEM. I don't see any storytelling really happening, which maybe is something you wouldn't really associate with STEM. And I think that's a mistake. Because it seems like, oh, STEM, we have to be very formal. We're just talking about our data and our numbers. And that, I think that's, that's the wrong way of looking at it. 
um, I was in this one research presentation where the poor grad student got interrupted. The professor was yelling at him saying, your work is so interesting. Stop talking about it like it's boring. Oh. Which was like, that has stuck with me. It's such a revelation because he is doing cool work, but he was just like talking about data and reading his figures. And it's like, well, tell me more about why this matters. Why should I care? You know, sell it to me. <laughs> so I think that's something that, that people really need to train if you want people to pay attention to your research or your product or mm. to fund your startup, you need to create something that's compelling, whether that's a beautiful prototype or an interesting visual presentation or simply really strong presenting skills. But if you'll allow me to wax poetic a little bit more. Please do, sorry. I think it is important that both artists and engineers consume lots of different source materials. So I think artists should be kind of looking to things going on in STEM and engineers should be looking to things going on in the fine art world um, because I think it can help you generate new ideas. Um, and both engineers and artists, if you're only paying attention to what's already going on in your field, I think your work is bound to be derivative. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm just thinking from my perspective, if you're like in the battery world and all you do is look at batteries and other people's batteries and maybe your battery is going to look like those <laughs> but if maybe you go out into the art world and, and see different interesting designs that are happening it might kind of spark a new idea of how to configure things and, and that kind of stuff yeah yeah that's so cool I also want to share a, a famous example of how being an artist while being an engineer helps you see the world differently. Um, this is something that I read in Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. It's an amazing book, and I highly recommend that everyone read it. Um, so in the book, there's this thing in math called hyperbolic space, which to be crude is basically like weird 3D space. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah. And for over a century, nobody knew how to correctly model it until came along a mathematician by the name of Dinah Taimina, I think is how you say it. Um, and she was the first person to show people what hyperbolic space looked like because upon hearing the description of it, she's like, oh, I know what that looks like. I crochet that shape all the time. <laughs> so she is famous for putting what people could only like really crudely draw into what the shape of this expanding space actually looks like um it's kind of like a cone but with like scalloped edges basically and you can just imagine i mean go google it and you'll see all of her different crochet models everywhere um how cool yeah but I the reason a lot yeah, the reason maybe nobody i have discovered it <laughs> maybe it was you it's janine janine you're a mathematician oh my god yeah but the reason nobody had thought of that for a century is it's actually, well, let's get into some gender stuff here. Most mathematicians are men and most men don't practice crocheting. So they had never like seen that kind of shape that she had seen all the time and was familiar mm. with. So you got art plus math plus gender. Dang. <laughs> all right. So I think that wraps up the art break, which is really more like the the main art chunk half. of the show, the art <laughs> the show is slowly turning away from energy and just focusing on art. <laughs> the energy of art making. Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's go to our last segment, the energy moment. So Janine, how have you been thinking about or using energy lately? I've been recording a lot on GarageBand over the past few days. And again, like none of it's really that great, but I'm learning how to use it. And um, 
the sheer amount of energy that it pulls from my phone is kind mm-hmm. of insane. I've had to charge my phone more in the past like two days than I think I have since I went on lockdown. So, so I don't know, man. I mean, I'm kind of interested in, uh, in maybe more recording software, maybe getting better mics. I don't know. Maybe that'll happen. There'll be a drastic quality change in our audio. <laughs> once I finally decided to invest in a better mic. So yeah, that's a shorty, but uh, that's kind of how I've been using my energy this week. How about you? Well, I've been thinking a lot about personal responsibility. Dump, um, dump, bump. Because this is another like, well, actually moment is that like, <laughs> every time I see people doing like zero waste stuff on like Instagram, mm-hmm. like, for you, I mean, that doesn't really affect the planet, but good for you. <laughs> um, which sounds really catty to say um but meow yeah meow the unfortunate truth is that individual actions actually don't make a difference when it comes to mitigating climate change and the research shows this um and as a reference i'll link an article i read recently about how even though society is at a standstill right now due to covid the world is Mm -hmm. still on track to release 95 percent of the carbon dioxide emissions in a typical year wow so anyway I think about personal responsibility, and even though I know in the grand scheme of things, my choices, Audrey's choices, um, aren't changing anything, there's nothing I can do to really change climate change, um, I do believe you need to try to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk of environmentalism, which is why to all of those zero-waste people, I'm like, that's amazing, I don't know how you do it. Um, mm-hmm. So something that I did this week, which is, you know, just seems very minor and trivial, but I was, um, was instead of just throwing out some pasta sauce jars into the recycling, I instead clean them and then reuse them to store my herbs. Nice. Yeah. And then I also made some vegetable broth, which I like to do every few weeks to make sure none of my vegetables go to waste. Cause in the past I had a bad habit of just like letting things rot and I'm like, no more. I think it is, it is good to try to make these changes in your own life because while what you're doing can't change what's happening in industry or where the, how the power is being generated, it does help with social acceptance of lower consumption and getting people to think about energy and consumption in a different way. I think that's it. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you too. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to The Energy Girl, a podcast where we break down research papers and industry reports to make the field of energy and sustainability more accessible. Please feel free to reach out by tweeting at me, Audrey Wong Goslin, uh, which in the past I haven't spelled it out, but it's at A-W-A-N-G-G-O-S-S-E-L-I-N because a lot of people don't know how to spell that. Or you mm-hmm. can also send me an email through my website, energygirlblog.com. Thanks again for listening. This has been the Energy Girl.